something I'm super conscious of is I say I'm Filipino and white. Like there's been a lot of things that I've had to to kind of unpack and deal with with being multiracial because uh, before I would say half Filipino and half white. And I think fractioning is is like just a really interesting concept, both in language and in the way that it makes it sound like two halves are less than wholes of each. This is What Am I Missing? A show where we talk about what the world has taught us about being men. We know we can do better. And that starts with reflecting on our past, looking at the present through a more empathetic lens, and committing to conducting ourselves a bit differently going forward. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to learning something together. Good evening, Shervin. How are you? I am very well. Max, how are you? I'm pretty good. I just finished watching the newest season of Queer Eye on Netflix. Is that something that you watch? Admittedly, when I watched it, this was a long time ago, and I think it was on Bravo or something like that. I don't think it was on Netflix when I was watching it. It used to be called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, I believe is what it used to be called. So I'm I'm a little bit out of touch. What was yeah, it, uh, what's it, interesting it, about the show? For sure. It it was a very different show back then and it was definitely the shtick of like a group of five some of whom flamboyant hosts who were essentially because of um central to the theme of the show were kind of representing the, what their um parts of being in the queer community were and applying that to straight guys and and showing them what it was like to to kind of come at things with a different approach and and I think it was fairly bold when it came out for the way that it engaged with conversation about you know normalizing sexual identity in the mainstream and and it also probably had issues with the way that it was portraying people um i i think i was fairly young when that came out and i just remember it was you know just kind of a bombastic show it was very reality tv of the 2000s as i remember it like very kind of trying to to be loud with what it was doing and Netflix relaunched it, I guess, about four or five years ago now. And um, the new one's just called Queer Eye. And they actually work with, they call them heroes. They, they work with guests who are of all sorts of different backgrounds. It's not just straight men anymore. And they are spending their time in cities across mostly central U.S. and the South, like they were in um, Texas and Austin in this most recent uh, season. And the people that they have on the show and the hosts themselves all have very different perspectives and backgrounds, whether that be their gender, um, their gender preference, the way they express themselves and dress, and their racial background too. And they've also extended that to the people they're working with. And, and they've worked with queer folks, so it's not just for straight folks. They've worked with um, uh, folks from the trans community and both men and women. And it, it made me really think of this concept of intersectionality. Have you had much experience with the word? Or I, I know that's kind of become more mainstream in the last few years, I guess. Yeah, I was introduced to the word maybe only a few years ago. And um, I have a cursory understanding of it. And in preparation for today's conversation, I've 
you know, was reading some of the material that you had suggested and had no idea that the term actually was first framed uh, or first coined 30 years ago. Um, that was surprising uh, by uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and that, that was 30 years ago. That's, that, is, that really did surprise me. Yeah, it's it's a minute, and you know the conversation has taken so long to get more mainstream. Um, and whether it be the multiple identities that everybody holds on the show, um, but also even within ourselves, right? Like, e- even at its most basic level, you're both a, a, a father and a son, and you know you you have an age for your background and you have a culture that your family came from. Like there's identities that, you know, we all kind of hold for ourselves. For me, I'm Filipino and white. And that means a lot of different things, both to me and other people. And, and I think it's really interesting to think about intersectionality of all of our different identities through some of that foundational work in that lens. And also, you know, how other people assign identities to us, right? Like I, I think a lot of this is, some of the things we've been talking about and, and how people are impacted in the way that society treats them or teaches them different things. And society ascribes so much of that um, to them. So I had a couple questions for you. The first one is, how do you identify? And the second is, how others identify you? And I'd, I'd love to hear kind of what your perspectives are on that and experiences are with that. This is a straightforward question, and it's one that I revisit periodically. I am a straight, cisgendered, Iranian male, 53, atheist, anti-capitalist, feminist, and all of that is wrapped around some of the roles that I have. I am a father, I am a son, I'm a brother, I'm a husband, an uncle an employer. And the reason why I paused a little bit, because there's this very simple question that people have been asking me for years. And it was, where are you from? And this has been a source of a lot of angst for me and a lot of query, right? So I literally have had situations where people, you know, I'd be out, you know, at a bar or restaurant or something in California, either in Northern California or Southern California, someone say, where are you from? And I'd say, Iran. And they're like, no, I mean, like, where do you live? <laughs> right? So even, even the context, because I'd had these experiences when I was 17, 18, as a high school student, and I was called a camel jockey by my classmates, these white Christian kids. I was the only person of color in, in that school, in the whole school, forget my class. And I'd never heard that before. And then in LA, two years later, uh, off of Crenshaw in South LA, uh, LAPD pulled me over and I had lost my driver's license. And so I was carrying my passport around. They made me lay face down and they draw their guns. I, I was laying down in the middle of the street in the middle of the fairly busy intersection. And when they saw my passport and they saw that I was Iranian, and then they told me what they felt about me and where I was and how I didn't belong in, in LA or in California or the United States, that 
set off this situation for me that when someone would ask me, where are you from? I immediately felt like uh, I needed to fight. It was not a welcoming question for me. It was not a, oh, I want to seek to understand you and connect with you. It was a, I want to label you and I want to other you. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's only been recently that I've been able to kind of work through that and figure out that that isn't always the case. But I, that's my long-winded answer. Where, what, what, do you, uh, what do you identify as? So I think the biggest part of my identifying myself over the last decade or so has, has really been tied up in my racial makeup. So my, my mother was Filipino and my father is white. My grandma and his parents and grandparents were like farmers in the Northwest and like Idaho country or something leading up to his growing up in the Seattle area. And uh, that's where I was born. So a lot of my identity, like like you, has kind of been tied to race. And so something I'm super conscious of is I say I'm Filipino and white. Like there's been a lot of things that I've had to to kind of unpack and deal with, with being multiracial, because uh, before I would say half Filipino and half white. And I think fractioning is is like just a really interesting concept, both in language and in the way that it makes it sound like two halves are less than wholes of each. And I, I didn't realize that that was like a thing that bothered me or, or came up for me until until only a few years ago. But that, that was something I was really kind of conscious of um, as I started thinking about my identity. Just like, you know, you're both a father, a brother, and a son. For me, my racial identity is is equal footing all around. Like I, I own up to all of it. I think it's also been a part of me understanding like the concept of white patriarchy and whiteness and and know that I still benefit from a lot of those privileges and I'm still culpable for a lot of the ways that I had either consciously or unconsciously oppressed or put down others because of my privilege and position. And so I'm very aware of that and and where I think it's really interesting to start kind of exploring this route in our conversations on this on this show is really where that kind of leads for us as men, right? So I identify as a man and only in the last few years I've really started understanding what that identity means and and what it means for when I walk into a room or the way that I interrupt people in conversation more than I'm proud of and and a lot of the other things that's come with and and I get away with. And I'm curious, you know, and thinking both of our experiences, but I'd love to ask you and, and get your thoughts. When was the first time you realized that you were a man or boy or male in some way and then that meant something different for you? Like when did you realize that that was an advantage or, or, or something that had a hierarchy related to it with those around you. If, if you can think of any times that that's come up for you. I mean, the, the most um, pronounced experience for me was uh, in Iran just after the revolution, you know, I was 10 or 11 years old and girls had to, you know, I noticed that they had to have their hair covered and, and uh, there was a different standard for them versus for me. 
I had more freedom, more opportunity. And the other experience for me that was kind of galvanizing, what I witnessed as a child was that the voice of men seemed to matter more. It almost was this idea that, I mean, I live in Idaho, and there are still people who show up and knock on the door and ask my wife, is the man of the house home? I mean, I, I am not, I shit you not, it's 2022. And this, this still goes on, right? But I remember this, my mom was running a business, and this is post-revolution, and there were things that my dad had to sign for. I mean, it's really, it's, it's shocking. You know, this is not, we're talking about like 40 years ago, right? And, you know, you and I, or for me, I'll speak for myself, I, I'm like surprised when I see this. You talk to women <laughs> and they, they deal with this like on a daily basis, right? It's just so common to them, right? They're, they're, they're witnessing it. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, interrupting people and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the dynamics in the classroom, like mm-hmm. you, you, you see that. It's pretty awful. I mean, to think that like half of us walk the earth believing that we have uh, some sort of divine authority. And, I, and, and that's instilled in us. I mean, we witness it at a very young age. This came up for me where it's something I, I try to be more aware of because just even spending some time recently with, with two of my best friends who, who hadn't known each other previously, and they both recognize that I interrupt people a lot, and I notice myself doing it in the conversation with them. They're, they're both women, and um, yeah, it was just really interesting to kind of see that in real time and just even being frustrated with how much I struggled with doing it because I still do it all the time. And and it's those dynamics of like what society has taught all of us, right? Like they kind of just learn to deal with it. And and it's to a thing, to a point where, you know, I didn't even realize that I was doing it. One, because I'm in my own head and, and not, not really appreciative of the uh, having those different perspectives. But also because people were also conditioned not to tell me or just to deal with it. And it was just really interesting that that was something that I had just been doing for so long and, and didn't really consciously notice. The thing about identity, which is interesting, is that it's kind of this subject-object uh, type of thing based in superstructure. It can be used for liberation and some level of um, emancipation. And it could also be used to oppress and I, I just want to share something, a, a quick story with you. About six months ago, a new neighbor had moved into the neighborhood and met me on the street and said, you know, we'd love to play golf with you one day. So I go and to play a round of golf with him here in Boise. And, you know, we're in the car talking and small talk, you know, kids, family, whatever. We run into another group of golfers and he knows them. So they're all talking and the other golfer is telling a story about how his daughter had just come back from some sort of school dance and uh, had come back with some friends. And as 
she was introducing her friends to her dad was mentioning their pronouns. And the father was making fun of his daughter and these kids and these pronouns. And then the guy that I'm playing golf with jumped into that quote unquote fun. And he was also making fun of them and all that. And then as we're pulling away, he noticed that I'm not laughing. And he asks me, you know, where do you stand on all of that? And I said, I'm probably on the opposite end of where you are. Uh, I think those were my exact words. And I wasn't laughing. And he was a white middle-aged man, uh, as were the other men. What I witnessed there, uh, Max, was this really interesting thing where, uh, and, and I think the topic of intersectionality, you see conservatives, how they're going at this topic, right? For them, there's a empowerment and a liberation that, that makes them uncomfortable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it, it pushes them out of the center, and they can't imagine a world where they are not the center of the universe, right? Right. And, and what's so interesting to me is that the way that I see it interpreted is if we think about specifically patriarchy, you know, being a hierarchical concept and intersectionality in and of itself doesn't have hierarchy in, in the word, right? It's not a hierarchical phrase or, or concept, yet the people who feel threatened feel like by not being in the middle or not being at the top, rather, if we're, we're talking about a hierarchy, they think they must be at the bottom. Like there's no concept of, they, they think that their hierarchy is being replaced by another hierarchy. And, and, you know, there just isn't an understanding of the concept of no hierarchy. I was hoping we could kind of take this conversation to talk a little bit more meta about the show itself and and why we think we can have these conversations. Like, what what is it about it? And I've been thinking about this. Um, some of the feedback that we've gotten from folks who've listened to the first handful of episodes have given me some thoughts and ideas about this. And, and so I, I know what I kind of want to say on this, but I, I'd love to hear from you because I know we haven't really talked about this. What is it do you think that you and I can bring to these conversations that is of value to others? Like, why, why, why are we the ones talking? Well, this goes back to another dimension of identity. I'm privileged. I am very lucky. And uh, I have time to be able to examine these various identities and also to uh, redefine and to unlearn. I'm, like I mentioned, 53 Iranian. And a lot of what I heard growing up, if you wanted to insult another man, you, you would call them gay, but you wouldn't use those words. You'd use a different phrasing for that. If you wanted to make fun of someone, you would say that they were a sissy or they were feminine. And the damage that that has done to me and to men of my generation, and it continues to do to society, and this is what, you know, we're you know, talking about misogyny, right? Misogyny impacts everyone, men and women. And we've, we've heard this from a number uh, of 
of our guests and, and the readings that we've done. What do I hope to get from this show? This is sort of, for me, an open project. It's like an open source project, if you will, where I am working through with you a lot of my own biases, my own uh, axioms, and I'm re-examining them. And I'm updating my firmware. That's kind of what it feels like, right? I'm just learning from you. You've done a lot of work around whiteness and patriarchy. You've done a lot of work there. And I think there are a lot of other people out there, men and women, who are eager to put their armor down and to, to sort of re-examine some of these concepts. Masculinity is an interesting one and how we can redefine what masculinity looks like, what masculinity even means. That's why I do it. I, I, I do it 99% for my own benefit. And, mm-hmm. and b- b- because I just think I'm such an ordinary guy that I think that just, uh, there are a lot of broken men like me out there. It's great to hear you respond to that. And thank you. And, and I think it's also really important that your perspective is having these conversations because I think for a lot of mostly men, I'll, I'll speak for the men that I've talked to and I know in my life, haven't thought a lot about the things that we're talking about. And they don't know how to think about it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to confront the idea that the way the world is built to benefit them as men or white people or whomever with privilege is the way the world is set up to do harm to others, to other people. And and there's guilt or shame or confusion around that. And as I go through dealing with a lot of this stuff and, and I have conversations with you and I hear about so many of the stories that you've shared, by, by the way, you, you mentioned your age earlier. I think I neglected to do that. I'm 37. But I, I, I think just with the stories that we both can share, I hope that our ordinary dude growing up in the US or wherever conversations connect with other people who have had similar experiences to us and they kind of can see what it's like to struggle with these concepts and talk about them and learn about them and make mistakes. And my hope is that with the types of topics that we pick for these shows, we're encouraging other people a little bit more like us to start thinking about these things and being able to talk about it, whether it be with us or people around them or whomever. And I think that can go such a long way. Um, really, as I've, I've learned about a lot of the, the radical work people have been doing around feminism and anti-racism work and multidimensionality has really taught me that an important part is facilitating the conversations and having the conversations because that's what gets more people to have the conversations and starts these, you know, these connections and movements around how ideas can change. And everybody I've met under the age of 25 and, you know, anybody who's been born after the year 2000 has blown me away with how fluid and fluent they are through all of these concepts and how they got to grow up with um, the internet and, and an infrastructure that is feeding them, you know, different types of information at different levels and not creating a lot of the same structures of patriarchy and um, white supremacy that you and I were more, more normalized with in our lives. And 
I think it's important that the people who were burned before that and closer to our ages uh, make the transition through some of these ideas too and, and keep up with what people are talking about and why they're talking about it and, and how society is changing. And they should really be along for the ride because I, I think it's better when, when we can support each other and, and try to make the world a little bit nicer to be in. And my hope is that just with a lot of these ideas and concepts, people who are making decisions about who's in the room when they're having a conversation or how they talk to somebody or what they're doing at work um, when they get to make a decision, that they think about these things a little bit closer and they can have a bit of a more thoughtful conversation and or perspective um, with how they go about things. So, so that's what my hopes are with with what us having these conversations might be able to do for others. That, that's really inspiring. And you pried something out of me unknowingly. And that is that I have some other dimensions to my own identity. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I went through a divorce. I suffer from depression. When we talk about identity, one of the things that you and I can do is to lift the shame from people being more open about the various layers to their identity to the extent that they want to and, and that they're safe and comfortable. These are important things because, like you mentioned, when I can uh, talk about these other dimensions to my identity, there are real benefits that come from it. For one, you know, this, the masculinity contest that, that we read about, the idea that, you know, I always have to be uh, dominant, that I always have to be the authority, I always have to know everything and, and be the, the, the fixer, that goes away, right? Just sort of being open and, and you know, being, being truthful and honest. And it makes it safe for other people to step forward and, and say, you know, I, I have this in common with you, or I want to learn more about this, or, oh, I can see why your reaction to this topic is so different than what I would have anticipated, right? Mm -hmm. The system is totalizing. The system needs us to have distance from one another so we can continue to other one another and to be extractive. That is, that is what the system is designed to do. And the more dimension we bring to ourselves and do so in an authentic way and make it safe, I mean, that's what I'm learning from my 21-year-old, from my 19-year-old daughter, from my four-year-old son who has a pink dress and wears his pink dress once in a while. And, and just the other day he said, Dad, I don't want to be called Holden anymore. My new name is AJ. He, he just, one day he said he has a new name as AJ, right? God, I wish I was as liberated as your four-year-old. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Like, it's just so amazing, right? And I think they're okay. I'm the one who uh, is fucked up, right? And I have hope because I see them and I know this system will crumble eventually. I just want to help people. And, I, and starting with myself, right? Say that, man, you can literally not be the biggest mouth in the room and everything will just be fine. Yeah, a friend of mine told me, because I'm thinking about, you know, interrupting 
and and making sure I'm not interrupting you right now because that's you know my paranoia. Um, but how in some, I think it was some indigenous communities, and I need to look this up. I'll, I'll put a, a link to to what I find or what I realize that I'm wrong about. Um, but I, I believe it's something like you don't respond to someone else after they finish talking for up to minutes before you start speaking again to really show a deference to like letting the other person finish and holding space. And, and I'm sure there's meanings I'm mangling in there, but just that concept kind of keeps coming to mind. Like, can I just count to 20 before I start talking after someone else talks? Anyway, I am even more inspired hearing, you know, these things that you're thinking about and processing. And, and it's definitely a really good experience for me to experience that with you, right? Like seeing you realize things and myself realizing things as we do this. So I align with you in that this is also a selfish journey for me to have these conversations. And, and hopefully I am, am learning things and, you know, we, we are sharing it with others. But for me, like a big goal is that I want us to to have these conversations that other people want to listen to, right? Like if people are willing to listen, then then I think we're going in a good direction and, and hopefully we get feedback on, on where to go. But for you and, and the goals that you had, whether it be for yourself or, or for where the show goes, how will you know that we're succeeding? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Is there something somebody can say to you or write in that makes you think that we made a difference or are we going for a million subscribers? Like what, what, no, where, God. where are we going with this? I think, you know, hearing from other people that what you and I are doing is helping them is the oxygen for this work. I carry some of that oxygen. You carry some of that oxygen. As you know, if if, it, if you and I are continuing to learn and grow from it, that's wonderful. And if other people start to feel that way, that's fine. But I don't think in terms of uh, numbers. I certainly don't think in terms of millions or anything like that. You know, the other day, one of our friends from Telepath, Nora, she posted about a really awful misogynistic set of comments that came into her TikTok mentions. And and she had this long post and she referenced one of the things that you and I have been talking to her about, you know, in the on misogyny conversation. And that was a shot of oxygen. Like she felt that there was a safe space that she could come and talk about mm. how she felt. And the fact that, you know, there are some men, not enough, but there are some men that are realizing how awful we are and how unknowingly we are upholding the system. And that's that oxygen. If two other women can, you know, can feel like the, maybe we can make the world just a little bit less shitty for them, uh, then, then we're probably, you know, we continue the journey, right? We just take a few more steps each time. Yeah, I, I um, feel the same way. Though I will add, ten subscribers would be nice. Just start small. Let's go for ten. I think we could do ten by the end of the year. That's a great goal. I like that. Okay. Um, yeah, our contact information is on the website. If you have thoughts or ideas, do let us know. Until next time, Shervin. Have a good night. Thank you, my friend. This episode of What Am I Missing was brought to you by your hosts, Max and Shervin. Editing and sound production was performed by Jason with intro music composed and performed by Keon. 
Our website was designed by Michaela and can be found at whatamimissing.fm. Visit us online to share your thoughts and feedback, and we'll be with you next time.